I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Last Night at School Committee. Ross Wilson and I are here to summarize for you what happened last night during the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. What happens at each meeting has big implications for our students and our city, and this podcast shines a light on the decisions our leaders are making. Ross, good morning. Good morning, Jill. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Very good. That was the last meeting of the year. Yes. So there was a big announcement made at the beginning of this meeting mm. last night that both Hardin Coleman, who's been on the school committee since 2013, yeah. and Ernani DeArujo, uh, who's been on the committee for almost a year, are both not seeking reappointment for their seats. Right. So it's a pretty big deal. I think yeah. we're going to definitely have two new members in the new year. Um, and there was a lot of nice comments about both Dr. Coleman and about Mr. DeArujo. Yes. I mean, Dr. Coleman, he's had a, such a long commitment to the school committee and to the city of Boston and to education overall. And Mr. DeArujo, the same, like just a, a, a really strong community member from, I think, the first member from East Boston. And he was lauded for asking hard questions of the committee. So we wish them both really well and look forward to hearing who the new two school committee members are in the new year. Yeah, Absolutely. So then after wishing both of them well, the superintendent's report included the most details on COVID-19 testing that we've heard at a school committee meeting to date. This is in response to growing pressure from the community for more and better testing. I've allocated an additional $3 million increase. The superintendent said that she is adding $3 million to the testing budget. Which includes adding 27 additional contact tracers to our district contracting with a nurse staffing agency to provide 10 additional nurses so that they can fill vacancies and add needed capacity within our schools, streamlining the steps to initiate test and stay by ensuring consistency between our digital platforms, which is permission click and crush the curve, and granting schools the opportunity to communicate to close contacts directly with our CIC partners. You know, Jill, th- this really isn't easy, and, and it's not—it's not easy to manage this in any situation, but particularly in schools. Cases are rising, and now we have Omicron. The state is funding COVID nineteen testing for all districts and all schools, and I think as we've noted previously, there's over two thousand schools testing across our state, and there is a contract with vendors to support districts. But really, the districts have to be able to execute these programs. Right, exactly. It all comes down to execution, not really cost. And we did hear a public comment last night about failure of execution from a parent whose daughter was in a positive pool and ended up being one of two positives in that pool with COVID-19. She was most frustrated by the fact that she wasn't notified that her daughter was in a positive pool nor was she notified that her daughter was one of those positives until days later. And this was after her second daughter and many others who they saw that week had been exposed to COVID-19. Jill, in brighter news, the superintendent highlighted an experiential learning competition last night where a, a BPS student from Binka designed the artwork for a new sneaker. Very cool sneaker, by the way. We'll link to his product and all the proceeds from his uh, shoes will go to his college fund. So we hope people check it out. Very cool story. We should all be buying a pair of shoes. Absolutely. Uh, Moving along in public comment, we heard a few more questions about the exam school policy. All of those who testified last night were advocating that the committee not move forward with an additional 10 points. And then we heard from several Charlestown High School staff members, all spoke in unison against a vote to move forward with any next steps around the Charlestown Innovation School prospectus. Here's one of those staff members. The writers who do not attend CHS 
nor included voices of the existing school community in their process, judge Charlestown to be a failing school based on school test scores and enrollment patterns. These are narrow measures of our student population. They do not reflect our growth and progress. Well, Ross, it's happening. We're finally hearing about a high school that isn't an exam school. Of course, as we mentioned in our last episode, you are one of the writers of this prospectus that's being discussed. And the staff members who testified each said that their community and the students were not included in the development of this proposal. Can you talk a little bit about why they weren't? Of course. And and um, I agree with you, Jill, that it was good to hear public comments about uh, our high schools, our open enrollment high schools in particular. Just going back, we mentioned this at the last podcast, that we were directed as a group of parents who were interested in investing in open enrollment high schools, we were directed by the superintendent's team that we were not allowed to engage with the Charlestown High School community explicitly, and that anything uh, we did, we had to go through the superintendent's office. So I want to be clear, like this isn't just about Charlestown High School. It's a model for all open enrollment high schools. But if you look at the data for Charlestown High School, it is concerning that our graduation rates, the enrollment rates are going down. And there are families that would like to invest in open enrollment high schools. There will be a vote next Wednesday, uh, we heard from the superintendent last night, on this prospectus. And Jill, I got to be clear here, this is just a prospectus. This is not a plan. If the vote goes forward, then there's a big engagement process and a much longer uh, articulated plan. So, So what many of the staff members that called in were saying was, we have ideas. And so, you know, to transform Charlestown High School as well. So acknowledging that, you know, things could get better. They feel like they already have some things in place. And so this is what you're talking about, right? Like they are inspired to do more things. There's a conversation that could happen. Everyone's kind of would like to see Charlestown High School transform into something where there are more kids who want to go there, that attendance rates go up, that MCAS scores go up, et cetera, et cetera. Graduation rates go up. And so... What everyone's advocating for, I think, is the start of a conversation. I think that's right. I mean, we were clearly blocked from having a conversation with the Charleston High School community. It took writing a prospectus and putting it out publicly for others to react to. And thankfully, the Charleston High School community and the the educators have reached out to us. We've had a number of conversations in the last few days, which is where we should have started. And I think there's great benefit to both this public comment last night, to this process And I think it's great. We're beginning a dialogue. In fact, Hardin Coleman mentioned at the last meeting that this is what he had hoped for all along. Um, This is what he'd hoped would happen. You know, having looked at the proposal around Charleston, I want to encourage the superintendent in our office to, and, and I would support having the writers of this report join the school improvement team at Charleston because it's, a, it's an actually a very exciting engaged plan that I'm sure that in a community process at the school, they could come forward with this as their uh, plan for success. So then there were three votes last night, two which were unanimously approved, which were for charters for the EMK and BDEA. And the third was to approve the closing of three schools the Jackson Mann, the Irving, and the Timothy. Lorena Lopera and Rafaela Polanco-Garcia abstained from voting without mention of why, and the remaining members all voted affirmatively, allowing for school committee approval. Next, Dr. Charles Granson and Assistant Superintendent for the Office of Equity, uh, Becky Schuster, gave a really clear and concise data-driven presentation 
on the Office of Equity. Yeah. Um, this was this was just it was a really refreshing, great presentation. I thought Assistant Superintendent Schuster talked about the educational programming that our office is running. So there's you know there's there's a lot of education about how we behave as both adults and students to make sure that we have a welcoming, um, embracing environment in every one of our schools. And Becky Schuster's office does a tremendous job of doing that. They also respond to a tremendous amount of staff and student concerns and have really an incredible eye on equity overall. Actually, Ms. Schuster was just talking about responding to, I think, 800 requests from staff about accommodations. Yep. And, and she did every one of those. You know? So it was just, it was wonderful to hear from the Office of, of Equity, and I thought it was just a, a great presentation. Yeah, I, I did as well. And then up next was CFO Nate Cooter. Yes. So this was the big presentation of the night, Jill. This was budget, you know, we're in budget season. So here's a few highlights from CFO Cooter's presentation. Essentially, we have like over 30 years of a balanced budget. So once again, we have a balanced budget. And that shouldn't be taken for granted in a school system where you have a, about a $1.3 billion budget. Pretty, it's, I think Mr. Cooter talked about 180 different responsibility centers mm-hmm. in Boston Public Schools. It's a lot to manage. Um, they've done a great job. They've balanced the budget again. They essentially noted that there's some rise in costs and then there's some decrease in costs. The rise in costs, um, not surprisingly, transportation came up again, that, that we maybe may have underprojected our transportation costs. And we also heard about food. And because we have a lack of labor, the system is relying upon vended meals instead of My Way Cafe. And that's actually driving up costs. And there's actually increase in food costs overall. But there's also decreasing costs. We've seen decreased costs in some of our positions and staffing uh, because there's a number of vacancies, also right. in benefits, and as well as facilities usage. Um, because we were out of school for a period of time, there was really decreased costs in those building usage. The big, you know, the big part of the presentation last night was about enrollment, Jill. It's down. It, it was about enrollment because enrollment drives budget. Enrollment drives budget. Right. Correct. And essentially, Mr. Cooter is saying we're losing students in Boston Public Schools, and we got to figure out what to do here. So, Jill, Mr. Cooter noted some schools with large projected enrollment decrease for next year, as well as schools with projected enrollment increase. So I just want to highlight a couple of these. For example, the Dever Elementary School in Dorchester is going to have a 15% enrollment decrease next year. Uh, the Blackstone School, which we've talked a lot about with K-6, to will have about a 16% projected decrease of students. Charlestown High School, which we just spoke about, is also projected to have a 16% decrease in students next year. These are dramatic decreases, and there's more. The, how, how did they do these projections? So Mr. Cooter talked about how he looks at this year's he looks at the current enrollment of the school, mm-hmm. and then he basically projects up. And mm-hmm. if there's increases, they project for, f- for further increases. And if there's decreases, they project for further decreases. So it's always based on last year's enrollment numbers. And then they just write size once they are already into the school year and, and see what the actuals are. Correct. And Mr. Cooter did note that when they look at projections for this coming year, mm-hmm. they're looking at the high watermark. Right. So this is not a steady state of how many students are in every school the entire year. Right. It's at when is the population going to be the highest in the school? And that's the high watermark. So it may not be the, that way in the beginning of the year. It may not be that way in the end of the year. But at some point in the year, they project a certain number of students will be in that school. So they'll fund, if there's 100 kids projected for a school, they'll fund for 100 kids. If it ends up there are 80 kids in that school at the end of the year, the funding remains for the 100 students. 
Correct, because okay. there ultimately may be 100 students in that school at some point that year. Right. Um, I just want to note, Jill, there are, are also projected enrollment increases, pretty substantial. The Winship in Dorchester has 27% increase in students. The Edison, 22%. Some of these are related. The Edison's related to, I think, the Jackson Man closure, because mm-hmm. that's in Alston Brighton. The Groose Elementary School down in High Park has 11% increase in students next mm. year. So there are increases. Actually, some high schools are increasing next year. Brighton High School is projected to go up by 11%, and Madison Park High School is also projected to go up by 10%. Again, Again, these are projections based on this year's enrollment and projecting forward for next year. Hmm. So, Jill, I, I, I would like to play a quote from Nick Cooter, who talks about sort of this long-term impact of enrollment on BPS in the next number of years. The last two years, we have seen a decrease in capture rate, which we attribute to the COVID-interrupted years, that we have seen a drop in the percentage of students that are enrolling in K-2 kindergarten in BPS. We hope to see that capture rate increase, but even if that capture rate increases, we're likely to see a decrease in the number of students we enroll because we have seen a decrease in the number of births um, over the last 10 years. So this is interesting, Ross, because Bill Walzak, he was a former mayoral candidate. He was the founder of Codman Health Center. He's you know, been involved in Boston Public Schools for quite a long time. He writes for the Dorchester Reporter. He wrote this last week, that people vote with their feet. This is true with regard to Boston families with school-aged children, and roughly half of the city's preschool population leaves the city by the time they reach age five. I didn't know that. He thinks there's long-term reasons for families not entering the Boston public school system. Moderate and high-income families are moving out to go to wealthy suburbs um, as their children's children reach school age, and they often return to city life when their children graduate from high school. But also the assignment system in Boston is difficult to navigate with very little predictability. And he also comments on Boston school buildings, saying that they're in deplorable shape. In addition, a third of BPS students attend schools ranked in the bottom 10% of Massachusetts schools, and BPS was threatened with receivership just prior to the pandemic. But he he's, goes on to say, you know, there's also something else that's going on that we have to pay attention to, which is housing, and that we're building tons of rental and condo units that are forcing vulnerable families out of the city because of increased rents and the prices of condominiums being so um, exorbitantly high. So so you hear Mr. Cooter talking about the declines in enrollment, the declines in capture rate. We, ta- we hear, you know, Bill Walzak, who has been deep in Boston and in Boston public schools for a very long time, talking about why students, we may be seeing fewer and fewer students come to schools in our city. The superintendent acknowledges last night that this is happening and talks about different ways that we can increase the capture rate. Here she is. You know, with our preschool kids not coming in, you know, I tell Nate all the time, you build it, they'll come. Uh, You know, I think that our young families really want to see us have early childhood programs. And they've also told me directly over and over again since day one that I come, that I came, we need before and after school programs. If we don't have before, if we don't have before and after school programs, if we don't have preschool programs, young families choose other schools or they don't live in the city. So Jill, the superintendent saying if we build it, they will come, which is her answer to Mr. Cooter's question about how do in- how will we increase the capture rate? 
You know, th- this is this is really interesting, Jill. Like we have a ten-year. There, there's lower there's lower number of births in Boston. Yep. Um, we have a lower capture rate, as Mr. Cooter said, for the last two years. Yep. We have a a number. You know, you just noted a number of things with Bill Walzak noted about people leaving the city. Um, th- this is a really big deal for our school system, and this is gonna have to play out. Well, it also it also goes back to this bigger question that school committee members have asked in multiple meetings leading up to this meeting, and they asked it again last night, what is the master plan? Right. Right. Because if you have decreasing enrollment, you have X number of school buildings and X number of teachers, and you want to accomplish a certain set of things for kids and make education better and better for them and map to the future, I think everyone's kind of swimming in what does that look like? And, you know, and the superintendent is talking about one thing that we can do, which is after school and before school programming. But it does feel like there's also this bigger question about what should we be doing comprehensively across the city to best serve this decreasing number of students? Right. I mean, I, we, we just had a vote tonight about closing three buildings right. and adding modular classrooms to a number of other buildings when we have a decreasing school population. Right. It, it's a little confusing about yeah. what's going on. Well, and it's just, it doesn't feel student-centered, right? Because there still are 48, 49,000 students in our district who we need to serve as best as we can. And so the question is, are they being served as well as they can be, or should we be doing other things as well? That's a good question. So so then we moved on to um, ESSER funding. School committee member Ernani Diarugio had been asking for an update on ESSER funding for quite some time. And the presentation, well, it was a bit dif- difficult to understand. And that prompted Mr. Diarugio and school committee member Ms. Lopera to ask clarifying questions about what the funding is being used for and for details on which schools have actually received their funding. Here is Chief of Accountability, Eva Mitchell. 45 schools applied during round one and all were funded. That represents 39.8 of their schools. Then she comments on round two. And only 15 schools applied for that round. That was only 13.2%. We did expect more schools to apply for that round. And finally, she talks about round three, which only Ross closed on November 24th. So 98 schools applied which is 86.7% of our schools. So we had a rush of applications at one time and the um, all plans that were submitted by the extended deadline of November the 24th um, that were approvable um, were approved. So so then Ms. LaPera pushed for clarity on how many schools have received ESSER funding. With the schools that did submit their proposals with the round two back in the fall. At this point, have those schools that were approved, have they received their funds to be able to invest at the school level? Ms. Mitchell responds by talking about horseman charters. And then she also was talking about matching overlapping building fund needs or building funding needs to which Ms. LaPera says, thank you for that context. But I'm actually asking a strategic question here. Um, And this question aligns to the superintendent's plan to increase enrollment. I've heard it in the context around um, some schools wanting to engage in out-of-school time additional programming um, Mm -hmm. and not having the ability to 
begin to engage with that. And so I think any information that you can share as to status um, for, for where each individual school is, um, that would just be really helpful. So thank you. Jill, I got to say, I'm a little bit alarmed here. The money, this ESSER funds are supposed to be helping kids recover this year right now. Right. Right now. It, right. Like spent starting in September. Yes. 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 Or before. Or even in the summer. Yes. Yeah. And, and we just heard that the bulk of proposals didn't come in until the end of November. Right. It doesn't even sound like all that money has actually been distributed. Right. In fact, we've heard that it hasn't. Right. And if the superintendent wants to increase before and after school programs or out of school time programs in order to entice more families to come to BPS, then maybe right. the money should be dispersed to schools to use it. Great use of ESSER funding. So... <laughs> Um, committee members ultimately asked for specificity and clarity on which schools have, have received funding, how much, and for what. We have not heard the answer to that question, but we would expect to hear that in future meetings. But this is alarming, Jill. We can't be through half a year with schools not having this funding spent on their kids' recovery. That's right. And that's what happened last night at the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. Here are some of the questions that we think are worth asking after this meeting. Will the superintendent and her team transparently share the details of how much and how ESSER funding is being spent at each school and at central office? What is a long-term plan for BPS school buildings? School committee members continue to ask this question. The superintendent mentioned the RFP to create a, a campus master plan. Will there be a campus master planning process? A wait list has been added to the new exam school admissions policy. We heard about that at the last meeting. Does this addition by the superintendent need school committee's vote? What is the schedule for school committee meetings in the spring of 2022? I know. I'm wondering what we'll be doing. Sometime in January. And of course, there are ways to engage and get involved. Testify at the next school committee meeting in the new year and share your thoughts on how to address the issues facing your school. Reach out to Mayor Wu and the new city councilors to discuss your priorities for BPS. And BPS has proposed a community conversation about goals for our schools and budgeting. Email Miriam Rubin in the finance office at BPS to join the conversation. Her email is posted in our blog. And lastly, sign up for our email list at shawfoundation.org to provide feedback on this podcast, receive updates on our work, and be notified when new podcast episodes are available. Thank you for listening to Last Night at School Committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day and a very happy new year.